0: Our text this morning is the gospel lesson just read from John chapter 7. Jesus has been north of Jerusalem, out of the grasp of the Jewish authorities for about a year at this time. And it's been about six months since he fed the 5,000. And about six months since he gave the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6, which we looked at last week. And it is about six months still before he will go up to Jerusalem for the last time, make his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday at the Passover, which will lead to his execution. So here we are in the previous fall. Right? We are in September, October, prior to that final Passover. And it is, the text says, the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. So it's a a feast which commemorates God's guidance of Israel through the wilderness, where God provided manna for them. Jesus has already spoken to us of the, the manna, which he is. And God provided water for them, and he will speak of the water here today. Now, because this feast, this particular feast, a dearly beloved feast in Israel, because it was in September, October, it was a fall festival, it became a time of thanksgiving to God as well for the harvest. And there's a practice that goes back at least a couple of hundred years before Christ where water was drawn every day of the feast from the pool of Siloam and then it was carried back in procession by the high priest to the temple all seven days. And the procession would enter the temple precincts, there would be trumpet blasts, the temple choir would sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. And the people would raise twigs and fruit and signs of the harvest. And they would say, give thanks to the Lord, repeatedly. And then the water would be poured out on the altar with the morning sacrifice. And so this water, in addition to reminding them of God's natural provision of rain and a fruitful harvest, it would remind them of this promise that God in the prophets had spoken of to Israel. Namely, that he would pour out the water of his spirit in abundance in the messianic age. In fact, in Zechariah 14, which was our Old Testament lesson this morning, you can consult it at your leisure. But the text depicts the age to come as a time when all the nations go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of the Spirit, if you will. So with that background to the feast, we'll make the three points that are there on the back inside of your bulletin. Going to the feast, teaching at the feast, fulfilling the feast. Going, teaching, fulfilling. So first, going to the feast. Jesus, we're told, didn't want to go about in Judea. Down in the south, at least in a public manner, and for a very good reason, the Jewish authorities, after his healing of the lame man on the Sabbath, and his clear claims to be one with the father, right, which were six months earlier than this, the Jewish authorities were seeking to kill him. So he didn't want to go, or at least he was not actively seeking going. But the festival of tabernacles was drawing near, and his brothers have an idea. They say to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there might see the works you do. Right? It seems they're aware of what we saw last week, that many, many, many disciples have walked away away from Jesus. Jesus' following is dwindling after the bread of life discourse. And so, in their minds, Jesus is up here in the northern part of the country in the rural backwaters. I mean, he did some miracles up here. He did the wedding, turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He fed the 5,000. But, I mean, it's like doing a miracle in a really small town when you can do a miracle in a big city, in their mind. His following seems to be dwindling. And so they're thinking in sort of publicity-seeking terms, right? They're thinking in terms of ministerial efficiency. If you're going to do miracles, right, you don't do them in Rock Tavern, go do them in Westchester County or New York City. Right, that's how they're thinking. They say no one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, they tell him, show yourself to the world. Who does a miracle of feeding the 5,000, you know, 75 miles away from the center of politics, political, and cultural power? So they're saying to their brother, hey, go where the action is. You'll become better known. You'll get the most bang for your ministry buck in Jerusalem. Take your signs. Go to where the people are. And, you know, John tells us very bluntly in the narrative what this means. Even his own brother's. Did not believe in him. That's a very important remark because John is saying look, this is not just misguided, immature advice from the brothers. It's not just that, it's a sign of their unbelief. It's a sign that Jesus' family, his brothers, simply don't grasp who he is, and they don't grasp the significance of his ministry. His own family is just as bewildered as everybody else. By the way, it's a perpetual theme in the Gospels, but especially in John. Jesus just leaves a trail of bewildered people. This crowd, the crowd doesn't know. Maybe he's, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a good man. I don't know. He's deceiving the people everywhere he goes. People are either leaving in utter confusion from Nicodemus on, or they're bewildered. And here, his own family's bewildered. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, we know what he's going to do by now. And it's probably not going to do much to help their bewilderment. This is the mystery of Jesus as a public teacher. In verse 6, he's sharp with them. My time or my opportunity is not yet here. For you, any time will do. This is a cutting remark. In other words, I'm obeying the Father's timing, since you're not, any old time is fine with you. So you go ahead and go up to the feast if you want. Again, his brothers must be thinking, What what does that mean? It's a very cutting. He says, Because then he goes on to that to his brothers and says, Because the the world loves its own, and you're of the world, the world can't hate you. It's very tough to grow up in the same house where your older brother is the Messiah. Very difficult thing. Can you imagine how grating the younger brothers must have found this? You think you're, older, you're living in your older brother's shadow? right? He says, the world can't hate you, but it'll hate me because I testify that the world is evil. But you're going to go up there and swim with the stream. You're not trying to obey the Father. You don't understand my mission. Don't assume that I'm going to act the way you act when I go to the feast. I mean, this is not really the way big brothers should be giving advice to their little brothers, right? I mean, it's not the way we normally think of it. So Jesus says, look, you're worried about these signs. I might do signs, but I'm going to testify against the evil works of the world, and you're not going to do that. In fact, you refuse to do it because you're of the world. And the world loves you. So it's a very biting reply to his brothers. But eventually, shortly thereafter, he goes to the feast. But not, John tells us this in verse 10, not publicly, but he goes in secret. The opposite of what his brothers wanted. His brothers saw an opportunity for publicity. Jesus is going to slip into the city. Now six months from now, when his time has come... He'll go up to Jerusalem. He'll make a very public splash on Palm Sunday. But not yet. Not now. Because he's already told us, right? He does only what he sees the Father doing. And he does it when he sees the Father doing it. So that's going. And the second point is, I want to draw our attention to is how Jesus teaches here. He's teaching at the feast. Halfway through the festival, he goes to the temple courts. Where these various rabbis would hold forth and teach. So you have a tradition, right? It's an open public arena. There's a lot of people around in the temple courts and rabbis would stand there and teach. So Jesus goes up and he, he starts teaching. And he draws a crowd. The people are amazed, it says. They wondered how he could teach like this without any learning. Right? So he, he clearly, here's this guy. They don't know where he comes from. They don't know about his credentials. But he clearly has a command of sacred learning. A command that's normally associated with going to rabbinical school. In the other Gospels, you, you recall, right? were told things like, he taught with authority, not as the scribes. Right? The scribes would say, you have heard it said. They would cite other authorities. Jesus would say, but I say to you, or truly I say to you. And so... This causes a sort of concern, but the point that Jesus is going to make is I am not an upstart. Like, I'm not, I'm not a pretentious self proclaimed preacher, even if I don't, in your eyes, have the right schooling or cite the right authorities. This is actually the heart of the conflict. They think he's a lone ranger flying solo. He's starting his own church. He ordained himself through the mail, right? And he started a church in his basement. And now he's in the temple preaching, telling everybody what they should do. But Jesus says, well, you know, and and to some extent it looks like that, right? I mean, it has that sort of feel. But Jesus says this. He says, my teaching is not my own. It's very simple. But he says, it comes from the one who sent me. And so, we might put it like this. Jesus' radicalism, right? His... um, His sense of being new, being outside the box, coming in from the margins, that's real. And the religious authorities don't know how to deal with it. But behind that radicalism is the deepest kind of traditionalism, namely an eternal traditionalism of being one with the Father from all eternity and gazing on the Father's face. It's the traditionalism of the first verse of the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So when Jesus says, my teaching is not my own, he's saying, my teaching is older, deeper, wider, and and more eternal than yours. It looks like I'm the, the radical upstart, and in some sense I am. I'm the deep traditionalist here. My teaching comes from the bosom of the eternal God. The Pharisees are traditionalists in the bad sense of the word. There was a a wonderful um, scholar named Yaroslav Pelikan, a great name. He taught Christian doctrine at Yale for many decades, was probably the foremost authority in the English-speaking world on the history of Christian doctrine, has a a magnificent five-volume set on this. But anyway, Pelikan's got a marvelous quote where he says, Tradition is the living faith. It is. I'm going to get this wrong now. I to get the quote. So he says, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. It's what Chesterton called the democracy of the dead. So tradition's a good thing, right? It's where the dead have their voice. It's the living faith of our fathers. But traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Right, It's the dead faith of the living. So the Pharisees thought they were just holding to the tradition. But in Pelican's terms, they are, tr- they are guilty of traditionalism. The dead faith of the living. Jesus is the true traditional person here. His teaching comes from eternity. So, the, so he says to them, look, if you want to evaluate my teaching, you're going to have to stop being obsessed with where I went to seminary or didn't go to seminary. The issue is the substance of what I'm saying. This is a problem, right? We, we all tend to have this. We can avoid the substance of what a person says because we don't like the person's background or their credentials or their pedigree or the way they say it. Or we don't like it, right? So we're guilty often of ad hominem fallacies, fallacies against the man. Well, you know, who needs to listen to him? He's Irish or whatever, something like that. But Jesus says... He says here, there's this moral requirement, a mindset of obedience to God. He says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out if my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Again, very provocative stuff. In other words, you can't understand me if you're not in a posture of obedience to God, right? If you don't, if you don't have the kind of faith that's seeking understanding because God the Father is the source and the one who authenticates my teaching. And so in verse 19, Jesus goes, as if he wasn't already, he goes on the offensive. He says, has not Moses given you the law? So now he's actually teaching. Here's where the teaching proper starts. Has not Moses given you the law? Now, if you've been following Jesus in the Gospel of John and you're in the crowd, you're thinking, I'm I'm guessing this is a trick question. (laughs) Right? Right? You're not, you're not liking it when Jesus opens the class with a question. The answer is yes. And then Jesus says this, yet not one of you keeps the law. Yet not one of you keeps the law. They don't view it that way. Then he says, the law says you shall not kill. They must, now they're thinking, okay, but we haven't killed anybody. And Jesus says, why are you trying to kill me? So he's basically accusing them of being murderers. Or at least being murderous. He's referring back to chapter 5. When he healed on the Sabbath and the authorities sought to kill him. But get this. Now I want you to understand this. That was six months ago. Which means Jesus has thought a lot about this. (laughs) Like Jesus has thought a lot about how he might respond the next time this comes up. That was at a different feast. And some of the people in this crowd, maybe most of them, probably don't even know what he's talking about. So they're indignant. You can understand their indignation. They say, you're demon possessed. Who's trying to kill you? They think he's got some kind of persecution delusion. And Jesus doesn't stop, again, Jesus doesn't stop to clarify and say, look guys, six months ago I did this miracle, some of you weren't here at that time, but the Jewish authorities said they were going to try to kill me, so I'm just speaking generally about the Jewish people, you know what I mean? When I say you're trying to kill me, I mean you, the Jewish people in general. No, he doesn't do that, of course not. Of course, he's right, eventually the crowd, either passively or actively, is going to capitulate to his execution. Right. So he gives a little lesson. He does refer back here to the to the to the healing. He gives a little lesson now in Torah theology and interpretation. He says, because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. If you can do that so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? So he's drawing, there's a, there's a rabbinical discussion that he's drawing on. Circumcision was thought by first century Jewish rabbis to be a perfecting of one body part. Jesus heals or perfects the whole body, right? Circumcision perfects one body part. Jesus' healing perfects the whole body. So he's making a simple argument from the lesser to the greater. If the lesser thing is, is true and good and acceptable, circumcision, how much more is the greater thing true and good and acceptable? And even the rabbis, and Jesus knows this, even the rabbis use the argument for saving lives on the Sabbath. If circumcision can be done on the Sabbath, how much more can you save a life on the Sabbath? So notice, strictly speaking here, Jesus is not asking for an exception to the Sabbath principle. Not, a, not by a long side. Notice verse 23. You circumcise a child on the Sabbath so that the law may not be broken. Jesus is saying something like this. Circumcision points to healing and renewal of the whole person. And that healing and renewal is deeply tied to what the Sabbath is about. The whole person is destined for face-to-face communion with God in Sabbath, rest and glory. Right There's a kind of, I have to say it, eschatology, to this day. right? Uh, we saw it in our opening hymn. I don't know if you noticed the opening hymn, right This is the day of resurrection, the day of new creation. The very Lord's day is a day which teaches the church that she lives out of the Sabbath rest, she lives for the Sabbath rest, she lives on the other side of the resurrection, she lives in the new age. That's why this day is the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. Christian consciousness starts from the Sabbath and goes to Sabbath rest. And so healing a whole man on the Sabbath, Jesus is saying to the crowds, is a sign of this coming restoration of all things in the Sabbath rest and peace of God. It's precisely what circumcision is about. And so that's his argument. It's his way of saying, thus I'm not some self-appointed upstart. I'm not an unauthorized violator of the law of Moses or the Sabbath. So he's, dis- he's In his work, his healing work, he's displaying the full extent of what the Sabbath is about. And so this is a masterful and it's a penetrating response from Jesus. You can tell he's thought about this in this intervening six months. Because you might remember what his argument was when he was first accused in chapter 5, six months ago, of breaking the Sabbath. He made a different argument. He said there, he said, my father is working till now, and I am working till now. Here he makes another argument. He says, all right, fine, you didn't get that argument. Let me make this argument. And so, as usual, he ends with some sharp words for those who saw the healing as an act of breaking the Sabbath. Notice he says this to them. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly or righteously. The people who accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath are unrighteous judges, he says. They're not good readers of Scripture. They've rendered a surface and a shallow and a superficial judgment. Instead, Jesus says, judge righteously. That means with clarity and discernment and depth. Don't evaluate my ministry in the superficial way you've evaluated it. Finally, Jesus fulfills the feast. The third point. Now, to understand the significance of this, we have to go back to the opening material I discussed about the water rite. They're thanking God for providing water in the wilderness and water for the harvest and the coming water of life. And then at the climax of the celebration on the last and greatest day of the feast, the text tells us, verse 37, Jesus stands up and he says in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now we're used to this, but this is again, yet a shocking forget about the social disorder it's shocking and even blasphemous thing to the jews attending right he's declaring that he's the giver of these eschatological waters that the that the prophet's promised right of the coming water of the age of abundance promised in isaiah 12 and isaiah 55 and ezekiel 47 right he is the one who is and who gives the manna He is the one who is and gives the life-giving water. And so he stands up, he lifts his voice, and he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, those prophetic scriptures, living water will flow from within them or even out from them. And of course, the text tells us this. He's talking about the spirit. Even as last week we saw that by the sovereign supernatural, personal agency of the Spirit, you're united to Jesus by faith. In the same way, that Spirit refreshes you and floods you with life and renews you. Right? Without this, the Christian existence is really a drab affair. This is at the heart of what it means to be united to Jesus. It means to receive water. Right? And we're told the Spirit hadn't been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. It doesn't mean nobody had the Spirit in the Old Testament. That's manifestly false. But it does mean that when Jesus enters his Sabbath rest, he's going to pour the Spirit out in fullness in a new, in a fresh way, in a universal way, according to the prophetic expectation. So, I want to conclude with three brief exhortations. One for each point in the sermon. So I'm going to kind of go back to each of these three points and talk a little bit about their concrete uh, call to us. I'm going to call these three points family, judgment, and water. Family, judgment, and water. First, family. I think the text is an encouragement to all who struggle in their families. I don't see how it couldn't be. I mean, almost all of us have difficult or unbelieving people we have to deal with. I mean, we may be that person. Right? You know, in a, whether it's in our immediate family or in our extended family, it's a universal phenomenon. Think of it. Jesus' brothers, specifically after knowing him firsthand for 30 plus years and seeing miracles at his hand, do not believe in him. They do not believe in him. They don't understand him either, right? We all have family members who don't understand our faith. Right? And, and what do they do? They offer him this half-baked, purely worldly counsel. Right? Who doesn't have family members you know, for whom that's not a cottage industry, Right? offering half-baked counsel? So look at Jesus' earthly family. It's, it's full of dysfunction and even heartache. You know, these guys, these brothers of Jesus, they've got some pretty good parents. And they have a good older brother as a role model. But there's, there's some pretty recalcitrant stuff there with these guys. So take heart, there's probably nothing unique or unusual in your situation. People always think, believe me, that they have an unusually dysfunctional and difficult situation in their family. It turns out, The only problem with that is 97% of the people have that. So, Jesus continues to bear witness to them. But notice, notice this also. He does not let his family deflect or dishearten him in his ministry. He doesn't let that happen. It's not that he's indifferent to them or he's neglecting them, but it's a case of him knowing that ultimately people stand or fall before God on their own. I guess I could put this a slightly more... I said this to someone recently. I said, heaven will be populated with people whose parents, grandparents, and relatives, and children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, are, in in some percentage of the case, unbelievers. That is, missing. And, it will not infringe on the joy of the elect one iota. So, yes, from the earthly perspective, the unbelief is tragic and we yearn, we pray, we witness. But Jesus understands people are, it is not going to deflect him from his messianic calling. Now, he's not denigrating his natural family, but remember, he is relativizing it because he goes forth to build a new and an everlasting family in the body of Christ. Right? This is why Jesus can say, Who are my brothers? There's a new criterion for who's in your family. And it's not simply whose DNA has been inherited from you. It's whoever believes the word of God, they are your brothers and your sisters. In a real sense, he's building an everlasting family. This is why he says no one leaves mother, father, sister, brother for my sake who won't inherit more. Now, I, read, I mentioned this to a couple of guys. I read an article this week. I saw the title. It came in my, on my phone. It said, Why I no longer sit with my husband at church. It wasn't about any marital strife or anything. It was actually a provocative article. The woman said, it was, she was making precisely this point, that at their church, there are visitors and strangers and people they don't know and people whose names they don't know and her point was her husband and her had decided that a concrete way of showing that the body of Christ is the family of God is to, and supersedes and takes priority over the biological family would be for this woman to go sit with a strange person and make sure that nobody came into the sanctuary that wasn't sat with and, and befriended and helped. Right? It was a concrete way, and a few other spouses started doing this. Now, I know this is a challenging thing. I know some of you are saying, I've sat with my spouse for 57 years. I'm not, not sitting with my spouse in church. I get it. But it is a provocative thing, right? It's a concrete, simple way where her and her husband said, well, look. I mean, I'm with you the other 167 hours of the week. Right? But that person over there has nobody sitting with them, so go sit with them. Jesus is building a new family. So, continue to bear witness to your family. You pray for your family. But you have a family that's intact. And that's the decisive family. So secondly, judgment. And uh, so here, I want to encourage us, as Jesus challenged the, the crowds, not to judge by appearances, Or by surface impressions. Of course, we do this with people all the time. But that's not really what Jesus has in view when he says, don't judge by appearances. Right? He's talking about their evaluation of his teaching ministry. Or how we would handle scripture. They misjudged him because they were superficial in the way they handled scripture. And Jesus expects them to judge or discern in a more profound way. He's a demanding teacher. Right, And by the way, not just for the leaders. It's often said, and it's partially right, that Jesus is very harsh on the leaders, but he's always compassionate with the common people. It's actually not true. Right, He often is, but he will demand that... This is just a common crowd of people that he's addressing in this passage. Right, And you can see how he treated his brothers. They're certainly among the common people. Jesus treats the common people very sharply as well. Because he loves them, of course. But remember... He's not just addressing scholars here. He's standing in the middle of temple precepts addressing everybody. And he accuses them all of having a kind of superficial judgment. So he's very demand. I remember I had a teacher in seminary who was extremely gifted, maybe the most talented uh, professor I ever had, the kind of guy whose mental clarity lit everything up. And he was very rigorous, and he would do these one-on-one Socratic things with us. And... Uh, I mean, I later got to know him very well, and we were sort of friends, but he was my teacher. And so one time he was doing it with me, one-on-one, and we were going over the material, and he would ask me this question, and I would respond. He'd ask me this question, and I would respond. And then at one point I gave an answer that he wasn't happy with. He just thought it was a little sloppy. And I I don't remember much from my professors. I don't. But I do remember this. He said to me, Kevin, you have got to be more tough-minded. What he meant was, he said, look, when you go to IBM and you write code, or if you're a doctor and you're performing neurosurgery, forget that. If you're looking for a car or you're remodeling your bathroom, you pay greater attention to detail than I heard in your answer. It is amazing, right? We pay this rigorous attention to detail in every area of life, and then we get to to the understanding of the theological depth of Scripture. We're like, eh, that's close enough. You know, something like that. It's kind of like this. But you don't do that when you remodel your bathroom, do you? No, of course not. That you have to get exactly right. And so he said to me, I still remember saying, you need to be more tough minded. Well, Jesus is kind of saying something like that to the crowd stop evaluating things on the surface. Evaluate them righteously. So what's he saying here? He's he's saying to the crowd, you should know the purpose of God in creation via the Sabbath. And you should be able to connect that purpose of God in creation via the Sabbath to circumcision as it's handed down in the law of Moses. And you should be able to connect those things to my healing of the lame man at the pool and show me how they fit together. I mean, that's a big ask. Is it not? I mean, just go to a a college class and ask a bunch of, a Christian college and give a bunch of freshmen that essay. Creation, Sabbath, circumcision, and Jesus' ministry. Connect them all together in two paragraphs, 35 points. Right? You don't want to grade those. Let me tell you. so Jesus, there's a kind of challenge in his teaching where he's saying, look, don't let stuff just bang around the back of your head. That's what this professor would also say to me. He would say, look, look, beliefs are not marbles, he would say. They're not marbles. Like, you don't have a pile of marbles back here. They're webs. They're intricate webs, and they're knit together. So start knitting some beliefs together, Kevin, instead of letting them rattle around like a bunch of marbles in the back of your head. So this is about seeing the connections or the splendor. So this is not a a call to be an intellectual highbrow thing. It's just a call to say there's a splendor and there's a coherence and there's a beauty to truth. So engage in such a way to discern it, to judge it rightly and not on the surface. So this is really a joyful thing, right? This is a lifelong joyful quest. Why? Because this is a pilgrimage into the mind of God. What other place would you want to go? Right? I mean, who, I mean, you could go to Paris if you want, but this is a pilgrimage into the mind of God. It's a, into the cathedral of divine light. So, finally, then, so that's the, the uh, judgment. The last point is water. We need this water. We're thirsty people, we thirst. And Jesus cries aloud, right? He's earnest for us to come to him and drink, to be filled perpetually with the spirit. And he yearns to give that spirit, right? Without which Christian existence is really just some sort of grinded out moralism. And nobody wants that. So so I encourage you, come to Jesus with your thirsting, we, are, you know, we don't often think of ourselves as thirsty, but, the, but, it, but it manifests itself right in our weariness or in our wanderings or in our dis- discouragement. We're thirsty. At the at bottom, we're thirsty. We need water. There's almost no psychological or emotional or spiritual difficulty that you are having that cannot be largely cured should the Lord Jesus pour out his spirit afresh on you right? and, and you have a sense of his presence and his light, and his life, then everything looks different. We all know this, right? Everything looks different if you've been, if you felt the touch, the freshness of the water of the risen Christ. And, and that's what Jesus is calling us to come to himself. Sure, we have dysfunction in our families. Sure, we often judge unrighteously and we judge superficially. We all see through a glass darkly. We're getting stuff wrong all day, every day. But... The Spirit enables you to bear witness to your family. Right? The Spirit is the remedy to the barrenness of our own spiritual experience. There's just simply no substitute for this. And so you might have to pray, even fast. Call, wait, see. Jesus wants to give you the Spirit. And he wants you to be filled continually with the Spirit. And then, you know what? It's a beautiful thing because that Spirit then helps you judge and evaluate with proportion and with depth and to see things in the right light in Scripture as we make this pilgrimage into the mind of God's own light. This is the spirit we need because it leads us through the wilderness to the eternal Sabbath glory rest of God where we shall all be made well. Amen. Amen.